0: You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age.
1: Welcome back to Christianity and Classical Culture on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me as always is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm hoping to redeem my, my horrible Latin reading from a couple episodes ago with a rendering of a play that I was obsessed with in my 20s in my native language. So uh, I, I hope to do better in your judgment and in the judgment of our listeners. I, mean, I, I, I thought your native language was
0: American. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, did, I did grow up learning the kings or the queens as it may have been at the time um, because Singapore is a former uh, British colony taught me to spell neighborhood with a with an OU until I was corrected by by Big Brother. But it didn't teach you, you to say horrible instead of horrible, which is very Midwestern. <laughs> <laughs> I was taught schedule and aluminium, though. Good. Um, so this is uh, taken from uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet and is in relation to uh, the character... Uh, the Euripides play that we're going to be discussing today in the second part of our two-part miniseries on this important and famous Greek playwright. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. Is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force a soul so to his own conceit that from her working all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distractions in aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceits and all for nothing for Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba that he should weep for her. What would he do? Had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have?
0: Yes. It's a wonderful scene. You know, this is uh, uh, Hamlet, uh, listening to the players, uh, when he's trying to, he's going to set them up to, rein- to do the murder of Gonzago and, and, uh, and uh, uh, trap, uh, trap his uncle Claudius into uh, looking, uh, revealing his guilt for having murdered Hamlet's father, the, the elderly Hamlet. And so, uh, and so the whole scene is great because it's, it's Shakespeare talking about the craft of drama. And here he, and he, he tells the players how he wants it played naturally, not, not, not ter- tearing the, the, the speech to a tatters. And it's 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 professional advice being given at the height of Shakespeare's career on how to act. It, was,
1: it was a bit of inside baseball, right, Dark Fleming? Uh, yeah, exactly. Shakespeare
0: giving advice to uh, actors through uh, the voice of Hamlet. But by picking what's 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 he to Hecuba? Hecuba to him, um, because Hecuba is the one of the great tragic roles, and as I said at the end of uh, part one of our discussion. Uh, this play uh, had enormous appeal for uh, both in the Roman period and in, uh, and in Elizabethan and Jacobean England. And one of the things we could talk about as we go along is what, what, why is it so appealing? Some of, some of the aspects of its appeal may be a bit tawdry, but certainly the passion of the play is what attracted uh, the, the uh, bloody-minded Elizabethans.
1: Well, for the small slice of our listeners that's neither familiar with the Aeneid or with Hamlet, can and to appropriately start our discussion today, what's the basic story of Hecuba?
0: Okay. Hecuba, of course, is the uh, queen. The pri- she is the primary wife of Priam. Interestingly, Priam is a poly- is, uh, polygynous. He has many wives and many children from different women and that's because he's a foreigner, he's an Easterner. The, Greek, the Greeks look upon this with great suspicion. But Queen Hecuba has been dealt a series of blows. Her uh, her city, Troy, has been conquered by the Greeks at the end of the Trojan War. Her, her husband, Priam, has been killed and various members of the family, her, her children, and, and her stepchildren have been murdered. Uh, Hector, of course, was killed in battle by Achilles, but uh, others have been killed by uh, Achilles' son, uh, Neoptolemus, otherwise known as Pyrrhus. And now she has to go into exile in, as a slave. Uh, as she's worried about daughters, she's worried about Polixena, who was supposed to be uh, the bride at one point, they had worked up a, a, a deal that she would marry Achilles. Now they wanna sacrifice Polixena to the ghost of Achilles, give him a bride in the other one. Very cruel and primitive sort of notion, extremely un-Greek. Her, uh, her son has been uh, treacherously murdered. Uh, by uh an uh, by an ally the king of Thrace Polymnestor. Uh, her her, her, son her
1: son or her grandson dr it's it's
0: a son it's a son, uh, okay. it's a son. Uh, there's also the, the, the her grandson is uh, going to be murdered also the uh the son of hector and and because they fear that he will grow up and uh to get revenge that's uh astyanax,
1: and not, we we're ta- not not that surprising, given that time period that when sons grow up they, yeah. they might seek out revenge,
0: yeah, well, his sons used to lose sons used to love and honor their father what 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 better way than to kill his murderer <clears throat> no don't don't try this at home <laughs> yeah. so but the son uh the but apoldorus uh, uh had been uh entrusted to Polynestor, the king of Thrace uh, and he of course the story is a little different from the Aeneid, but it's similar for in order to ingratiate himself with the, with the uh, victorious Greeks and to steal the money that had been sent with uh, Polydorus, uh, the, the, the poor kid is, uh, is murdered. And all throughout this, this all throughout the play and her previous experience, uh, she ha- she and her family have to put up with the bullying and brutal Greek leaders, and uh, she is uh, completely demoralized. The and uh, there's a worry also about, of course, her daughter Cassandra, the prophetess, whom Agamemnon is sweet on, and so he may be at least saving from murder. Now, in the end, uh, to anticipate a little bit. Uh, she is so consumed by her desire for revenge that she becomes at least as brutal and inhuman as the people she hates. And it is a terrifying spectacle and a terrifying lesson. Now, nothing she does in the course of the play is unjust, and it is so ruled uh, by the end of the play. But uh, the the brutality of her anger and revenge is uh is 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 very alarming it's small wonder that it was popular in the renaissance and in the uh elizabethan and Jacobean england where, where the plays are full of violence and revenge you, know, you start adding up the dead bodies in hamlet you know you you, you could probably hardly see the last scene if you stacked them up in the, in front. And Hamlet is by no means uh, a particularly bl- bloody play by uh, standards of the time. Uh, it is a play, however, which on the surface is all about violence and blood, but th- it is also a play that goes into d- fairly deep moral, social, and political complexities and unfortunately, at our own age, as in, the, as in the age that Euripides is portraying, these moral complexities are often uh, eliminated. In other words, all, all Iraqis are bad. All Serbs are bad. All Muslims are good. All, you know, it, we, we, it, we, we, we have to demonize the enemy. One of the qualities of civilized life is that we can re- we can say we may have to kill this enemy, we have to fight him, but it doesn't mean we treat him like like garbage. This is, of course, the very difficult lesson which Achilles refuses to learn in the Iliad, but to which the reader learns, and it's a, and it's a, it's maybe the most powerful thing is that uh, even the gods are terrified of an avenger in uh, in in the Iliad but that, that uh, we, have to, uh, we have to learn to treat others as if they were members of our own family. And that's, that's what, of course, poor Priam says when he goes to ransom the corpse of his son Hector and, and Achilles is ready to kill it right there. And he says, think of your own father when you are killed in battle. Won't your father want to receive your body? So th- this is a very, very hard lesson to learn to treat the other, the Gentile, the unwashed foreigner as a, as a human being.
1: Well, and you're referring to those generalities like all Iraqis are, are bad or all Serbs are bad. You would think that you wouldn't have to wait hundreds of years for these themes to repeat. Uh, we see them today, all Syrian leaders gas their own people. Uh, the it, United States is always correct when accusing other countries of having or using chemical weapons, even though they're the only country to ever offensively use nuclear weapons. Um, it seems country,
0: that- By the way, the biggest manufacturer of chemical and biological weapons, which is how it <laughs> came to the Middle East to begin with, between us and the Russians, we're the world's suppliers.
1: Someone, someone had said uh, in defense of of that time period, says, "Well, we know that Saddam Hussein has chemical weapons because we gave them to him." Uh, So the it's interesting you mentioned that our modern age may 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 not care for this play as much. I mean, because I feel that we're very much in the time period of the morally problematic so-called hero. So if you look at what's popular among television shows, although I hate that I know anything about that or among popular novels, anybody who's anywhere close to the hero position is always morally problematic, and you find yourself cheering for him. And In the old days, this might have been that guilty feeling when you were cheering for the thief to get away with the bank yeah. uh, or, or the killer to get away with the murderer, but these days, uh, it's much more. So as you say, the lesson that Hecuba is trying to teach is – is possibly lost not only lost but then perverted into her being an a a hero of our time period
0: yeah you know i wonder you know the the we live in an age when people not only children don't just read comic books adults go to movie after movie after movie based on comic books and one of the more interesting and appealing characters and by the way i see very few of these movies uh i saw one and a half X-Men movies. And it was and even with a good performance by uh by Patrick Stewart and the uh, and who whoever plays Magneto, the extremely good but evil English actor. Ian McClellan. Ian McClellan, yeah. Uh, and uh well he he, he he does a fantastically good job as Magneto I think because it so comes so close to his own lousy character. But anyway, uh you know you have a character like Wolverine. Now the idea, Wolverine is this, is this sort of a down and out bum who wanders the world. He's a, he, a sort of a, a primitive Charlton Heston type to begin with, but at some point he becomes a freak and he could turn into this ravening beast who has no moral responsibility. It's very hard for me. It's like all of a sudden the Wolf Man is the hero, and it's hard for me to uh, to to take these things very seriously because there's no there's no there's no moral complexity Or the are in the the TV show the incredible hulk he gets mad and becomes this raging beast well this, this there, there's no room for moral seriousness because you know it's just like when the when the moon comes out and the, the wolfman attacks you it's not his fault he, he, it, it just is the way it is i'm not very fond of it. well
1: i i think we could probably do a, an episode sometime maybe our listeners might consider it profitable on the I I hate to use the word renaissance, but the renaissance of superhero films, there's been more than two dozen produced just in the last decade alone. And uh, if we frame it within man's search for meaning, if I, if I can use such a title that uh, the superheroes are representing the best that man can come up with as a replacement for God. And it's pretty poor fare.
0: Well, you know, uh, originally you know our heroes. You know in the in the Iliad. You know are are flawed characters, but they express the nobility of those people. And Neas, of course, is a giant step forward as a civilized hero with 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 compassion and decency. But if you go back to the first one, we know even Gilgamesh is struck with sorrow for the fate of mankind that we have to go into the land of the dead, where there is no happiness and no pleasure. There is a depth. Of of compassion for the human race in the older ver- even in the oldest versions of Gilgamesh, the Sumerian version, which is completely absent in the we have we have managed to go back thousands and thousands of years to to our prehistoric past. We're now living in maybe the, the 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 old Stone Age in in a moral sense.
1: Well, and the play the play starts us out in a in a pretty dark place, doesn't
0: it, Doctor Burney? Yeah, indeed. In uh, you know, in uh, in Aristotle, we are told that a tragedy goes from uh, a, a hero who is at the top of his good fortune. You know, Agamemnon comes back as the sacker of Troy, the greatest man in human history, and he's dead at the end. Or, you know, Oedipus is the man who solved the riddle of the Sphinx, he has married the queen, he is, he is happy and successful and self-reliant. At the end, he is blinded and a, and, a helpless, and a helpless person. Here, this play starts out on a very, very dark note, but the, the opening monologue is delivered not by a god, not by uh, not by a heroic human being, but the ghost of the murdered Polydorus, Hecuba's son, who had been given been uh, entrusted to Polymnester, the king of Thrace. So, the, at the 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 very the very virtually from the first line, you could imagine you know dark cello notes being played by the orchestra, you know, or or you know the, a brooding Wagnerian tone. You know, the first line, uh, you know, I come from the vaults of death, from the gates of darkness, where from the gods aloof doth Hades dwell. I, Polydorus, born of Hecuba and Priam. So, and then he, he explains what the situation is, how he's been murdered and treacherously, and he doesn't want to really confront his mother because he's so sorry for what she has to face. And he sort of predicts some of the coming drama. This is very, very, you know, a brooding way, because if, if this is the high note that we begin on. So you you know maybe a maybe a a, a, a a person viewing it or reading it for the first time, you think, well, it's going to now we're going to get some cheerful stuff. It's going to it's gonna, <laughs> we're, so we're gonna, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. So the post-it note that you put there, Doctor Fleming, is
1: don't worry, it gets worse.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, uh, Jesse Jackson. I don't know if he invented this phrase, but I, the first time I heard it, he he once said, you know. Uh, People say there's light at the end of the tunnel. Sometimes the light at the end of the tunnel is an oncoming train. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know why I'm suddenly reminded
1: of Rush's reference to the Reverend Jackson. <coughs> yes, <laughs> was that uh, was one of maybe one of Russia's best lines uh, summarizing uh, someone that he was uh, commenting on.
0: Yes. So, uh, uh, so Hecuba. Uh, you know, is, starts out in misery. Why is she miserable, Stephen?
1: Well, because she's miserable about her dead husband and the daughter that she has, uh, Polly, Pogzana, um, is, could have more troubles for her.
0: Yeah, so and so this it's, it starts on this dark brooding note but uh, the, it gets darker quickly. she quickly learns the fate of her daughter Polyxena, uh, that she's going to be a sacrifice to the ghost of Achilles and she also finds out what has happened to son Polydorus. So she begins as a sorrowing mother and this and the mother and now it uh, goes into something like madness. Uh, I reminded once my mother, this is a long, long time ago, I was 12 years old, and my mother is reading the newspaper, so she starts laughing. I said, Mother, what's so funny? She said, listen to this letter to Ann Landers. And it's, dear Anne, you know, I was happily married with two children. They got killed in a car accident. My husband was murdered by a thief. I've got terminal cancer. What am I supposed to do? My mother, meanwhile, who has this twisted, peasant sense of humor. Finally, this is so... Impro- over the top, and by the way, I think it was a phony letter, but it's so over the top, my, my mother goes into hysterical fits of laughter. And i that's what I said to her, I said, you would laugh if you saw an old lady push down the stairs. <laughs> And I haven't even—I hadn't even seen the great Richard Widmark movie where he finds this witness to a crime and ca- cackling hysterically, she's in a wheelchair. He pushes the wheelchair down about ten flights of stairs. And you see the chair go bouncing, and the old lady flying out, and the <laughs> and Widmark's maniacal laughter. One of the uh, funniest things in all film noir. So this is not on. This transition of Hecuba from simply grieving, uh, uh, but in a normal way, to to the extremes, uh, to the to as as Americans used to say, to the taking it to the limit, uh, this is not untypical of uh, Euripides. His Heracles, for example, in the in uh, Heracles Minomnos, Heracles Phuereg, um, go, goes quite mad. The sufferings of this life can be uh, simply uh, too much for some of this. Now, as Christians, we generally believe, and in fact, uh, the, I, I'm not sure we didn't learn this from the Greeks originally, that mankind learns through suffering. This is the great Escalian, uh, uh line. Pa- the, the phrase is pathé mathos, uh, wisdom or learning, understanding, through suffering, through, through, through experience of, of, uh, that humiliates us and teaches us the limits of human ambition. But Euripides is sort of cl- a little bit close to Gregory the Great, uh, the Pope, who was Pope around 600 uh, AD. Gregory in his uh, masterpiece, I think, it's one of his great works, it's a long moral commentary, moral and spiritual commentary on the Book of Job. You know, so, he con- so Gregory, Pope Gregory talks about suffering and he says, "Well, of course, suffering can be very good. It depends on how you take it. It's suffering. You know, we're, we're like Job. We're stripped of our worldly possessions. We're afflicted with disease. We lose members of our family, and we learn our position in the universe. We accept this. So on the other hand, there are some people who don't have what it takes to learn from suffering. They're they're they're, they're they would be they could have got through life fairly decent human beings if if uh, if they'd got a few breaks instead." but the, the suffering overwhelms them and they become broken and hopeless and just dis- desperate. Now, by the way, I have seen this, this is, this part of the Magna Moralia is very, very deep and um, it's almost too deep for a rational philosophy. It is a, a deep spiritual insight uh, uh, from uh, St. Gregory. And I've seen it, I've seen very few moral commentators in any history of the world who understand that uh, suffering doesn't always elevate us. And so that when people say things like, well, God gave me cancer to teach me humility, this notion I find absolutely monstrous. It's, 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 uh, it's kind of ultra-Calvinism that somehow the creator of the universe has time to think every day. You know, I think that little darling three-year-old on a tricycle should be run over by a Mack truck. And uh, because that'll teach people that not to,
1: <laughs> <laughs> to trust their own luck. Yeah. Well, well, also, Dr. Fleming, the, the fact that you would be bragging about being taught humility sort of undermines the entire lesson. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a Ben Franklin's famous remark, you know, in his autobiography. He, he makes a list of the virtues and so he decided to work on each one separately as if this were even remotely possible it shows you what a what a, what a nut job Ben Franklin was but he, then he does say ironically sometime i somehow i never got around to working on humility <laughs> so <clears throat> now you, you you spoke of a political dimension to
1: plays about the trojan war so what is what's going on in this case
0: all right one of the things we have in this play as we we, uh, there are ethical, dem- and ethical and political dimensions about, uh, about the role of uh, democracy, for example. Um, democracy is personified in the character Odysseus, who is treated as a demagogue, the kind of person who can sway a, 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 an assembly. And he comes to tell Hecuba what the decisions are and, uh, and Hecuba had once saved him from death when she could have revealed who he was. And he says, well, thanks to you, I see the light of the sun now. And she says, are you not, are you not a coward, a, a caitiff, proved by these plots? You were dealt by me as you say you were, that as I saved your life, yet uh, you do us no good, but, thys, uh, uh, but every ill you could. You're a, a thankless, a uh, 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 spawn, in fact, sperma, a seed of uh, all you that grasp at honor by babbling to the mob. I don't want to know you, you who injure friends and and consider nothing of friends or friendship, so long as you say something to please the rabble. What crafty willingness did you, ima- wiliness, did you imagine this on my child to pass your vote of murder? So the contrast here is Odysseus, by everything that's holy in Greek morality, Odysseus owes his life to Hecuba. She treated him as a friend and she earned that friendship. And he turns around and persuades the, the, the mob of the Greeks that they should, they should kill her daughter. This is, uh, this is particularly disgusting. And later on in the same speech, she says, um, in her, that is in my daughter, I, I take my joy. In her, I forget my woes. For many a lost bliss she is my solace for, for my, the loss of my city. She, my nurse, my staff, the guide for my feet. Not, uh, not that tyrannically the strong should use their strength, nor they who prosper think to prosper forever. I too was once prosperous, but now I am no more, and all my happiness and good luck has been taken from me." So this, this portrait, on the one, on the one hand, she brought humility by this. All she has left really is her daughter, And now she is going to be deprived of this by someone who owes to her his very life. So this tension between personal friendship, between a personal relationship with with maybe a foreigner that you, you owe this to. And by the way, this is a very important theme, the friendship Forged between foreigners, it's, it's a, it's a, the generally it's translated as guest friendship. It's, it's a theme, very strong theme in the Iliad. It's a theme in the Odyssey. It's a theme in all Greek drama. And here in the Peloponnesian War, uh, uh, as uh, now sort of portrayed as the Trojan War, things such as friendship are, are gone, are gone. Now, Agamemnon, by contrast, uh, feels pity for Hecuba, but he, uh, he's a ruler and he's not a bad guy, but he's afraid to face his people because he can't stand up, because he's sort of like Nicias, the Greek general who tried to talk the Athenians out of the expedition to Syracuse, and then they, of course, made him the commander. He doesn't know how to stand up to the rabble. And Hecuba says, in a speech uh, to him, "Among mortals is there no man who is free to 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 wealth or to fortune? He's slave. The city's rabble or the laws, uh, the threat of the laws, impeachment constrain him into paths his soul abhors. But since you are afraid, you overrate the crowd, etc." So, in other words. So as Euripides understands democracy to be pandering to the lowest and, and fear of the lower classes because in numbers they are so strong. The, uh, it's an important portrait of Agamemnon as it's a subtle portrait because he can't bring himself to do everything that's completely right, but he's a de- decent, pious sort, like, like Nicias of whom when he dies, uh, Thucydides says, he died a death such as a man as he should never have died. I mean, it was unworthy that so great a man, so fine a man. But this, this, the one thing Thucydides uh, criticizes in is the fact that he is afraid of the Athenian mob. So uh, Agamemnon tries to rise above petty passions. And when uh, uh, Hecuba... In in the, in a fit of uh, her anger and revenge, she does some terrible things to Polynestor and his sons. Uh, Agamemnon and uh, Polynestor calls for her death and uses all the typical arguments of a wily uh, lawyer or or uh, or a popular politician in the Athenian assembly. Agamemnon sets that all aside as pettifogging and rules that uh, Hecuba did what was. What was just
1: what other lessons moral or political would you like to discuss start Fleming? I know we don't have time to talk about all of them
0: we certainly don't Z um, one I think one very important lesson perhaps the most important thing one can come out of uh, uh, reading this play uh, it's a it's a sort of double lesson it has to treating uh, understanding our fellow human beings judging them uh, by a reasonable standard and um the, the importance of compassion here's a uh, hecuba in line in line thirty thirty five following and this is uh she's talking to uh Polixena, her daughter and she says um our words are wasted uh if, uh, because it has it simply been decreed, death, death will come. Uh, b- b- moan that thou beg that that life not be taken from you, fall piteously, piteously at this knee of uh, Odysseus, melt him. A plea you have, he too has children, well may he be compassionate for your fate. In other words, because I have children. I, I'll take compassion on your children. This is similar to the scene I mentioned earlier in uh, in the Iliad over the the battle, uh, the the, uh, the struggle over the body of Hector, and it's a very uh, uh, important theme in the Aeneid where Dido says, um, uh, "Not ignorant uh, of of of." Uh, Misfortune, I learned to have compassion on the misfortune of others. That is, bad luck should teach us a uh, kindness and decency and humanity. So, <clears> turnabout <throat> apparently is not fair play, and uh, Hecuba, because, in other words, Hecuba does not apply this reasoning. To Polymester, the Thracian king who had killed her son out of greed. She murders his sons. She tricks him into into thinking they're they're friends. She murders the sons and blinds the father. And of course, Polymester thinks only of uh, getting revenge on her, but fails to prevail in argument uh, against Agamemnon. And so uh, it is predicted that Hecuba will uh, gradually because of the extremity of her revenge and her bloodlust will become like a barking dog. I mean, a, a, uh, as, a, as an American might say, a complete bitch, and uh, which was a very strong image for the Greeks. That is, they, they, they liked, uh, for them, they saw wild dogs everywhere. They thought of dogs as mainly uh, treacherous scavengers, like hyenas, uh, unless it was your dog. I mean, uh, Odysseus obviously has a very strong, uh, pet dog, so uh, that that even though her revenge is extreme, Agamemnon still pronounces it just, and that one might wish that for her own sake, Hecuba had not gone to this extreme, but uh, but nonetheless, the the revenge itself is a moral action.
1: Well, and. Why was revenge so important in Greek tragedy
0: and and later on in Rome and and even later in England? Yeah, this is something It's very hard for moderns to understand. We say we have a judicial system which uh, punishes criminals and which provides justice. And uh, what we never answer the question is, what happens if somebody rapes and murders small children and then gets sent for 10 years to a psychiatric home? But how is this justice? Justice, justice. I, I'm afraid I, I part. I part company with uh, both Pope Francis. But even the Catholic Catechism strongly misrepresents. That is the latest Catechism misrepresents the nature of capital punishment. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't say that it is illegitimate. Many. I've, I've talked to priests and laymen alike who say that the new Catechism forbids it. No, it does not. What it says is that since the purpose of of, of, of uh, capital punishment is the protection of the populace, that can be done by locking somebody up for life. Well, you start with the wrong, the wrong, the wrong understanding. The purpose of capital punishment is vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I shall repay. This is all throughout the Old Testament. Paul again quotes it but to understand that now, of course, the sword of vengeance is given to the ruler. So when the government executes a criminal, it is blood revenge on behalf of the victim and his family. If we don't want to understand that, that's our fault. It's not not the church's fault, and it's not scripture's fault. Then the question, what happens when the sword of, of the ruler is thrown away and it's not exercised? So, from the point of view of the of the early Greek, from the point of view of the of the from the point of view of uh, Elizabethan England, uh, un, an unpunished murderer is, 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 is it, it cries out to heaven for punishment, and and this is this is this is. This is not just the Old Testament understanding or the Greek and Roman understanding. It is also uh, the Christian understanding. And, and one of the reasons why we don't understand it is because we don't believe in blood tie. We don't believe that the relationship between a father and his children or his grandchildren or his nephews or his cousins, that this is any stronger than his tie to uh, people in Ethiopia or Bolivia. We're all human beings. We're all the same. America, doesn't exist, we don't have borders, we don't have a right to defend our borders, and we don't have a right to defend our household or our family or pursue our, our, the interest of our family uh, exclusively. for your written- but you're, yeah. you're
1: using all of these constructed words, Dr. Fleming, like family and borders and uh, you know gender. We all know that these are just uh, constructs of the patriarchy.
0: Yes, well, that's 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 what Marx and Engels say, and Marx and Engels wouldn't lie to us, would they?
1: <laughs> Parenthetically, I would add that uh, false catechisms also cry out to heaven for vengeance. Uh, in the spirit of the bumper stickers that say "My president is Jefferson Davis," I would say that <laughs> my catechism was published in
0: 1566, not uh, 1993. But... You know, not to not to get into that, but you know, one of the things the original apparently. What people say the Catechism says is what it said before Cardinal Ratzinger got a hold of it, and what he, what came what emerged was a compromise. the The uh, capital punishment was not condemned or eliminated, but it was given a false explanation. Interestingly, our friend Father Barber uh, has uh, several times in in lectures uh, given under my auspices has said that. You know, the, the, when the church makes a, a, uh, an authoritative statement about tradition, the statement is, has to be accepted. We don't, however, have to accept the explanation. So his, his, his example was he had found some documents of the, of the diocese of Los Angeles going back to, uh, to like the 18th century. And, you know, these were, this was an era in the, which the, the only people there were Spaniards, and they were fond of fighting duels. And the, uh, the bishop, quite properly, repeated the, the general sentence of the church, which is against dueling. And then said, it because honor is a false value, and that is why you shouldn't fight duels. Well, as Father Barber pointed out, honor may be excessive, or it may be carried to extremes, but let's not be so quick about eliminating this, this a sense of honor that leads us to, to shun evil and to pursue the good. There are many aspects of honor that are very good. So the argument was wrong, the reasons given are wrong, the, the, the general judgment has to be accepted. So I take from this about the current catechism, yes, capital punishment is licit. All the other stuff is baloney. <laughs> so, now, for the Greek, you know, if we, we've talked even more than once, uh, I don't know about in, the, I think even in a podcast, we've talked about Aeschylus Aristia. And the Aristia is about blood revenge. I mean, it is about the, Agamem- the death of Agamemnon, call- the, the murder of Agamemnon calls for the murder of his murderers. And, and, uh, and finally, the, the, the trial takes place in Athens where Orestes is absolved of, of blood guilt. And the play is always misinterpreted to mean a rejection of vendetta and and a celebration of democracy as the replacement of blood revenge. That's about as accurate as saying that Paul rejects capital punishment and blood revenge in favor of you know uh, Christian pacifism. Do people just make these things up? The 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 uh, however there is a there is a difference. In the in the in the world that Aeschylus belongs to, which is a world of robust Athenian patriotism and strong families, and the more troubled world of the late fifth uh, century, when the claims of the Athenian commonwealth are impinging upon the integrity of the family, not the way they do today, but where there you know there were the sense of a. The the private sphere being more more important than the public sphere, this is now in in question. So uh, Euripides has lived through a period when the claims of the Commonwealth were in conflict with the flames of family ties, and this caused caused reflection, uh, reevaluation, and questioning. But what it does not produce in Euripides' case is the rejection of the old moral system any more than it, it, it entailed that in the case of Aeschylus and Sophocles. The, the the significance of blood is very great and the the burden on a family is very great. Now the Athenians were a civilized people, the Romans were a civilized people, and they did everything they could to ameliorate and moderate uh, the the circumstances under which revenge could could be taken. Uh, and in other words that you provide juries, You provide rituals. You provide all sorts of social mechanisms by which uh, justice and compassion can be pursued. But ultimately, there is a law of blood, as stated by Aeschylus, that blood once fallen to the ground cannot be recalled. You cannot bring the dead person to life. Therefore, payment has to be made or our world is out of joint. Now every society, including American society, down to our own age, the, uh, has has understood this. Our ruling class does not understand this. There is case after case which I have been keeping record of, where there was a case of a, a woman. Her her son was molested by a, a Christian camp counselor, and so he smiled at her and laughed as he as he was getting off with a with a minimal punishment and her name was Ellie Nestler, and she pulled a gun in the courtroom and shot him dead. Now, she went to jail, which strikes me as, well, maybe a necessity, but she was willing to go to jail. Now, I'm not advocating shooting people who have harmed members of your family, but I do think we should understand that this is a basic element of human nature, and if you try to eliminate it, what it means is that Our only redress comes from the powerful people who own the government and and who act like they own the government. They do own the government. don't, Don't ever mistake that. The government of the United States does not belong to the people. It belongs to the people who fund the political process. And so you will you will. Teddy Kennedy never faced. The, the the death of Mary Jo Kopechny, which was either the result of a drunken rec- reckless accident, where which he should have done 10 years for if if, uh, if there were any justice in America, or what is just as likely it was a cold-blooded murder. Now we can make movies now. You couldn't make a movie about this 10 years ago. Now there's a movie out. The point is, a lot of American people hated Ted Kennedy because of what he did on in this event. And because they understand that you know, uh, you uh, this this woman had one life. She's she's she has a mother and a father, and uh, she was her life was brutally taken by a ruthless and rapacious rich person. I don't know what's going to happen in in America in the future. Whether people will more and more take justice into their own hands. I used to think so. I think maybe we're getting so weak and cowardly this won't happen. But what I do say is that the, the, the obsession with blood revenge, which like you get among the Greeks and then you get in Elizabethan England. I mean, every every bloody play, it seems Macbeth, there's Blood Revenge, the, so, you know, the the, the the ghost of the of these people. The um, you know Hamlet. Uh, you know, play after play, the Avengers tragedy by uh, Cyril Turner, the Spanish tragedy by Thomas Kidd, play after play. It's it's the big theme of, of Renaissance England. And I believe that these things, ideas come to the fore, especially when, when government is growing at the expense of family relations. That was certainly true in Elizabethan England, and it's far more true today. Is there anything that we haven't spoken about Dr. Fleming in
1: just a a final minute or two that you'd like to mention before we finish out the episode?
0: I would just say that uh, that the one of the many things you could take out of this play is the importance of of, uh, having being able to see not just ourselves as others see us but see others as we see ourselves to understand that that as much as we may see a Russian or a Chinese or an Iraqi as an enemy, or a Mexican immigrant for that matter, that these are human beings with normal human passions and that uh, there is a necessity for a civilized person to even if we have to kill an enemy, it, it, it should be done with some understanding of that they are entitled to respect as a human being.
1: I think that's a good place for us to end today's episode. As always, thank you for your
0: time, Dr. Fleming. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcast.com. At Fleming Foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.